Welcome everyone to In the Lord's Vineyard, the podcast where we strive to see the hand of the Lord in the gathering of Israel. I'm your host, Jason Allen. Tonight I'm joined by my beautiful wife and co-host, Carrie. So thanks for being here, Carrie. Oh, happy to be here. And we're really excited about tonight's guest. She's a member of our ward. She's awesome. She's all about missions. She's all about sharing the gospel. I think you guys are going to absolutely love what she has to share tonight. Hey, would you mind introducing Holly for us? Yes. I'm excited because I get to introduce a fellow Oregonian. So Holly, I know, I didn't even tell you that. <laughs> um, Holly is from Tigard, Oregon. She was born in Kansas, but her family moved to Oregon where her dad taught at Portland Community College. Mm -hmm. um, she went to BYU as a transfer student and worked on her degree in French for two years before going on a mission. So after her mission, while back at BYU, she was set up on a blind date with her husband, Nolan, through one of her mission companions who had married his brother. Uh, they've been married for 28 years and have three kids. Holly previously worked full-time at the BYU library until she quit to be a stay-at-home mom when her firstborn was five months old. Her hobbies are reading, traveling, hiking, languages, piano, and eating. And she loves food. A fun fact about Holly is she's familiar with five languages. She speaks Dutch, French, and English fluently, which is amazing. <laughs> and she studied German in college and is currently learning Spanish. That is awesome. Holly, we're so excited to, to get to know you better today and to hear about your mission and missionary experiences. Thanks for joining us. So let's start talking about what mission you served in. Would you mind telling us where you served, what it was like, you know, what the members were like? Yeah, so I served in the Netherlands Amsterdam mission, which right before I served there, it was the Belgium Netherlands mission, and they had just split it. And so I was only Netherlands. And then right after I left, they put them back together. So I was there from, yeah, 1992 to 1993, and it was just the Netherlands and Dutch speaking. Yeah. And then uh, a little bit about it, it was just, uh, I, I served in four different areas. So every area was a little different, but the Dutch, um, the Dutch everywhere were very, um, very, very proud. So it was not a very religious uh, community or very religious culture. Um, in fact, it's, it's, yeah, very non-religious. The most religious people there were the refugees. They had a lot of African refugees we had people there from Nigeria, from Ghana. I taught people from Zaire. I actually ended up teaching French in every one of my areas. I got to use my French. Yeah, in every one of my areas. So that was amazing. But the Dutch themselves, they were um, they were very, very proud. And they'd been through a lot, like especially other people had been through the war. So a mm -hmm. lot of people had turned. You kind of see that where they turned from God or they turned to God. A lot of them had turned from God. And the youth weren't religious at all. So it was, uh, it was an interesting uh, mission because uh, I liked the people, but I struggled to love them until later, until uh, I went back to Belgium and worked and I, and I worked with a lot of Dutch people and I learned to love them more after my mission. I don't know if that makes sense because it was really hard because they weren't really religious. So, um, but they were really, they liked to have people come and listen to them and, and visit. They liked to talk about other things. If you didn't talk about religion, they were great. <laughs> but yeah, so they would say that God created the world, but the Dutch created the Netherlands or Holland. So, so what? So what about the members in the Netherlands? How how are they? They love the sister missionaries, and everyone in my areas they would have us over like daily for DAs. So we had dinner appointments every single day, 
uh, I did happen to be in, in a lot of wards. So there were some areas where I was split between a ward and a branch. So we were kind of taken care of by both. But the missionaries uh, were spoiled by the members. They loved us and they would go all out. And even the investigators wanted to feed us. Everything wanted to feed us. We got some great food. And the members, uh, they... The only thing that was really hard was they really struggled because the fact the church wasn't super, super strong. Uh, there were only 4,000 members, three stakes, still three stakes. They were really nervous about sharing the gospel. Uh, so really, we had to do all the finding. So the finding was done by the missionaries, not by the members. And so we would go to appointments and we would tell them, how they can do it in the easiest way, you know, non, because they were so scared and nervous to share. It was bad enough that after my mission, they pulled missionaries out and wow. recombined it because they said members weren't doing their, their part. So they specifically told us that because the members were not doing the finding, they were pulling missionaries out. And that's why they combined our mission back with Belgium. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So when I left, I was part of the group that was leaving because they were decreasing the number of missionaries. So... Yeah, my, like the other sister and I who left at the same time, they didn't replace us. Was that pretty hard for the members to see happen? It was. Yeah, it was really hard because they loved the missionaries. The missionaries were, we weren't having to run the wards or anything. We weren't having to do anything like that. But they did love the fact that we were, you know, supporting them. And um, they just, just love the missionaries. <laughs> I can't explain it. They just, you know, every Sunday we were just surrounded by the youth and just, yeah, they just love the missionaries. So, yeah, I, I believe it was hard. I looked at the number of members. It seems like there are more members now. We did have, I don't know if I should talk about it now, but we did have a special experience. So my in my district in M2C, Elder Haas, his grandfather was Elton Perry. Well. And so, yeah, so Elder Perry came to our mission about a month in. So we arri arrived in July and he came back August or September. He went because his grandson was in the mission. He took an interest. He went back through the records and found that the Netherlands had never been dedicated to the work. Whoa. So he came out and dedicated the Netherlands to the work. And I was there for the, the dedicatory prayer. And he actually said that from this time forward, the work would move forward, that they would finally start seeing some progress. One of the problems was that in the 50s, there was a call for members to come to Salt Lake. They really were bringing people in. And the strongest members of the Netherlands left. Mm -hmm. So they left the members that were, you know, maybe not willing to pick up and leave. And so the churches had kind of floundered up until that point. And so um, Elder Perry's prayer promised that from that point on that they would see progress, that there would start being more baptisms and more, you know, strengthening of the wards and the branches. And it's amazing, you know, there has been progress. You know, the fact there's a temple there now, we didn't have one when I was there. Oh, and sorry, Carrie, I had to step away for a minute. If any of you were watching on YouTube, you could see the, the table shaking a little bit. Our daughter got up uh, and was not listening. So the hard part trying to film when you got kids late at night, but they, they do what they want to do. But yeah, those are cool experiences. So I'd love to ask, what was it like to be there for the dedicatory prayer when, when the country was dedicated? That was amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's been a long time. It's been 30 plus years. But I do remember just feeling like, because uh, I already knew the difficulties. I mean, I'd only been there a month or two, but I already knew just from being there for a month or two that, that just it was such a struggle to get anyone to even talk to us. Uh, I remember spending hours doing, we call it Obstrat, which is op on the street. 
Obstra is on the street, which means street contacting. And Long Sundaran is along the doors. We did a lot of, we did a lot of tracting and street contacting and it just felt really really challenging i don't know i wouldn't say hopeless but it, sometimes it did feel really hopeless so hearing him make those promises um and seeing that you know this is beyond just the missionaries this is this extends to you know heavenly father and jesus their their help that we would have that help going forward that was really that was really helpful because i was already at the point where I was feeling discouraged. I was still a greenie mm-hmm. and starting to feel like, what what have I got myself into? <laughs> but yeah, hearing the promises, that was amazing. I wish I should, I wish I had a copy of them because I'm, I'm sure they have a copy somewhere of it, but yeah. And the church had been there a long time. The church had been there. It was one of the first countries that missionaries headed to. The Netherlands, it's been since the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Uh, missionaries have been there, but it had never been dedicated. That was really interesting. He couldn't find any record of it. Yeah, wow. That's, it, that's interesting because we read about in church history all the time about countries being dedicated for the work. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to hear one about one in modern times, right? Especially if they've been there for a long time. So it's good that Elder Perry went back and checked. And that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, that was really cool. And and yeah, there's a reason why I didn't get called to Europe. I would have had such a hard time with the people, right? Like I, I get pitched probably too easily. So they definitely sent over a certain caliber of missionaries who are more patient who can spend mm-hmm. the time and the work and, and maybe get a few baptisms. I had a young men leader growing up. He'd served in France, didn't have a single baptism in his entire mission. Yeah. 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 And our mission had, oh, it was 130 missionaries. So 30 sisters, a hundred elders. And we were averaged about 120 baptisms a year in our mission. So we averaged about 10, ba- so that averaged about one baptism per missionary per year. Welcome. I mean, think about that. And so that was, yeah, that was, those were some tough numbers. Yeah, you do mention that, yeah, Europe is less religious these days. Uh, mm-hmm. In college, I was on the BYU International Folk Dance Ensemble. So we got a tour, went to Europe twice. And it was interesting because on Sundays, we'd be there with the other groups. You know, we'd have groups from Hungary, Serbia, and all this. And they're like, oh, so what did you guys do today on Sunday? Oh, we all went to church. They thought it was so weird. They're like, young people go to church. Like, who are you? Yeah, yeah. And they actually had us go to, um, in my third area, they had, um, the missionaries were invited to go do a class on religion at the school, the public school. And so we were, we taught, uh, I think it was six periods. So each period, so the elders would do one, the first class, then we would do the second class. And the first question we'd ask them is, is anybody religious? And nobody would raise their hands. These are, these are our high school kids. So nobody, so the first class, the elders got up. And, well, they didn't even get up. They sat. That was the problem. They sat and did their kind of talked about the gospel. So we're able to talk because it was like, you know, a religion class. And then we realized, okay, we got to get up. We got to get more, you know. So the second time, second hour, my companion and I got up and we were more like, you know, animated and got them talking. We discovered that if you ask them if they're religious, they'll say no. But if you ask them if they read the Bible, they'll tell you possibly yes. So they were not comfortable sharing their religious feelings, but they were okay telling you whether or not they read the Bible. So that was really insightful. Um, so a lot of times when we would approach people on the street, we wouldn't ask them, you know, do you believe in God, things like that, because that's too personal. We would ask them, do you read the Bible or have you ever heard of the Book of Mormon? That was my favorite approach was, and it was during the time right after the keystone of our religion, was it Benson had just given that talk a year or two before that. And so we used the Book of Mormon a lot. And that was a good approach because it was less intimidating or less, I don't know, it wasn't too, too personal. 
to be able to talk about a book versus how they felt. Because because Northern Europe, I don't know, they're that are colder. The further north you go, the kind of the the less expressive, less. I mean, they're wonderful, but they're not super warm and smiley. It's it's a cultural thing. I, you know, if I'd smile, they'd be like, "Do I know you?" <laughs> no, I'm just smiling at you. <laughs> so yeah, they're a lot more uh, contained as far as their feelings. That's interesting. That that's part of one reason I love this podcast too is we get to learn about other cultures around the world, what other members are like around the world. So thank you for sharing and. And I want to dive into, because again, the point of this podcast is to see the hand of the Lord in the gathering of Israel, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's working, he's moving, he's doing this work. And so even in a tough place, like where you served, I'm sure you had many experiences where you saw the hand of the Lord, right? Would you mind maybe jumping in and sharing maybe some of those experiences or miracles that you saw? So my first area was Bostonar. So my comp had, they just opened it. It was a brand new area. It was actually where all the ambassadors lived. Uh, it's kind of like the Beverly Hills of the Netherlands. So it is the most wealthy city in the entire, and it's just outside of The Hague, um, so Den Haag. And so we had, and it's also kind of, it's kind of between Leiden, if you've ever heard of Leiden, Leiden and uh, and Den Haag. And so we served in Vosnar, and we were, um, we had investigators in The Hague too, but we were kind of trying to focus on Vosnar, which again is a very, very wealthy city. And so we would track a lot. In fact, and we were, Consider suspicious. We had the police come and, and, and interview us because we were reported as suspicious. <laughs> and at the time, we were living in a mansion in a Milva Park. So an American family had come to the Netherlands, their LDS family, and they decided to rent out the servants' quarters. Uh, not rent them out, but have the missionaries come stay there. So we were staying in the servants' quarters of a mansion in the middle of a park in the city. So we're like... You know, and so we were doing tracting in some of the more humble areas, you know, some of the regular houses, homes, and the police came and, you know, and, and questioned us. And, and we told them who we were, gave them our, showed them our permission to, to proselyte and told them where we live. And they're like, you live where? Because <laughs> there's only a mansion and like a, a senior center, a senior home in that park. So they're like, so later on, they checked to make sure they saw us heading home but as we were going through that same neighborhood the same neighborhood back and forth back and forth we came across a family the reicharts and it was really unusual to find people that were dutch speaking willing to listen to us willing to talk to us it was usually you know people that were from africa who spoke english or i did some french but this was very unusual this was a family i believe they might they were Suriname. so they're from Suriname, which is a you know a dutch colony so we had a lot of people from indonesia uh, Suriname and some of those other uh, Curaçao, some of those places uh, that were living in, in the Netherlands. So this family, the Reicharts, they um, uh, let us come in and they talked with us. I think we might have had a, a, I don't know if we had a referral or not, but we ended up teaching them. And this was an amazing family, uh, brother, uh, now brother Reichart, but we'll get to that. He and his wife, his wife's main name was Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, her band name was born. When she saw the Book of Mormon, she's like, that's my name. <laughs> and, so, and they had two children. And it was like this amazing little family. And uh, so we taught them. And one day, uh, when we went and taught them, uh, the father said that his mother had come to him in a dream, dressed in white, and told him what we were teaching them was true. <laughs> so he ended up, yeah, he ended up getting baptized he didn't get baptized till right after I had transferred out. So I got us to get the pictures and everything, but I got to teach him. And I remember that his wife was the one that was just so like in, you know, engaged and everything, but he would sit quietly 
through all those in, those uh, appointments, and I remember thinking, he, there's something, he's, he's thinking this through, but he was really quiet. So it was really surprising that it was him that was the one that felt so strongly. So at the time, she did not get baptized, but he did. And he kept in contact for quite a while. He even sent me a program where he'd given a talk. Later on, I heard he was in a bishopric. So that baptism kept me going the rest of my mission. So I'm going to cry, but, um, you know, Brother Reichardt, his, you know, that experience, I mean, come on, having his mother tell him it was true. Um, so having that divine help, you know, I realized, okay, this is the only way that we're going to have any baptisms if we have some divine intervention. And so he, I haven't, I'm, I'm afraid to look up. I, I mean, I'd like to see how he's doing, but I'm almost afraid because I just want to just remember how, how amazing he was and how, you know, and uh, the war just, you know, took them, he took him in and, uh, I don't know what happened with the rest of his wife or kids if they ever got baptized. I don't know, but I know he did. And that, the fact that he was so just so proud of the fact he gave a talk, they sent me the program. I just, Yeah. Yeah, I love that story. Thank you for sharing. Again, that's that's kind of why we love this podcast too, is because we get to hear these amazing experiences where it's very obvious when the Lord steps in. And this brother Reichart, like, sounds amazing. There must have been a good plan for him that the Lord would do something like that, which which I love. And I gotta make a joke here. Hopefully, it's too bad, but um, you know they always talk about the elders live in the terrible apartments. And the sisters live in the posh places. He literally got to live in a mansion. So he did. It was crazy. Yeah. Oh, I love it. But yeah, I, I love that, that experience you shared, though. I mean, I had a, the guy I was teaching on my mission, his daughter was a member, and he had had a son who had passed away, I think, when he was in his 30s. And we were teaching his dad, and he was, he was kind of progressing, but his daughter would come and tell him a couple of dreams that she had about her brother. One of the dreams was she saw her brother who was standing in a line waiting to go somewhere. And she walked up to him and he said, no, this line isn't for you. Your, your line's over there. And so, I mean, she was a member. He wasn't. And then she had another dream later where she saw her brother sitting in the classroom studying and preparing. And she asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm learning. I'm preparing to, to move forward. And so when, when her dad heard these stories, that it, it blew his mind. And, and he, he started appreciating more. One night he had a dream where he kept having the names Ephraim and Manasseh come to his head. Oh. Ephraim and Manasseh. Yeah, he told me and my companion that. And we looked at each other and I said, we both had obviously had our patriarchal blessings. I said, Elder, what, what tribe are you from? He said, Mass. What about you, Elder Allen? What tribe are you from? I said, Ephraim. Now, maybe that wasn't exactly why that, but that was just our quick connection to it, right? But yeah. The Lord steps in in, in dreams. It's true. But yeah, I'd love to hear any, any other experience you'd like to share with us. So my last area, a lot of times I think I had companions accuse me of, of trying to get out of real work because I like to use the area book. Because I felt like the area book was a good way of, a lot of times these people are people who didn't progress because of one problem. And if we not let enough time go by, maybe they resolve the one problem. So I was really big on checking, but we had a tendency to some in some areas to collect eternal, because the Dutch would love to have you come. They would love to come talk. It didn't, but a lot of them struggled to progress, to make commitments, right? So uh, I've explained this to other people. We can't, because someone was telling me how heartless it was to drop investigators, but I'm like, but we can't waste our time mm -hmm. if they're not going to make progress, you know? And and so we have to find those that are ready to commit. Now, we went through, my last area was we went through the area book and there was one who was an eternal. She had been investigating for 10 years. 
Like they oh. kept going back, kept going back. And so my companion's like, no. I said, well, let's go one more time and then let's take her page out. Let's get it out of there so that we don't perpetuate the problem. Let's go one more time and then we'll throw it away. I promise we won't, you know, continue this, this problem. So we went and uh, she happened to be home. And uh, within five minutes of the appointment, she's like, I need to talk with the bishop. And my companion just kind of like talking like what, you know, talking. I'm like, wait, you said you need to talk because it's all in Dutch. And I'm like, wait. You said you need to talk to the bishop? She's like, yeah, I want to get baptized. <laughs> and we're like, what? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I'm ready. And uh, But her, she had two problems. One, her ex-husband was still living with her. And because uh, a lot of the Dutch, they, they will often cohabitate his tax reasons and et cetera. And the second reason was that she was still struggling with smoking, with an addiction. So she's like, I am going to change locks, kick my husband out. He's going to be on a trip next week. He's a trucker. I'm going to kick him out, lock the doors while he's gone. And I'm going to get a patch. So she did it. She did it all. She decided she was going to get baptized. Her family had all joined the church in Germany and she was ready. And uh, so when her husband came back and found out that he'd been kicked out and everything like that, he's like, wait, this is serious. What, what is this? This is Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so he ended up taking the lessons from the elders. So, but I don't know how far he ended up going with it. But all I know is my last P-Day, she was in Germany getting baptized on my last P-Day on my mission. And her mother, her calling is to get the white clothing ready for baptisms. And so they kept it a secret from her of who was getting baptized. And so, yeah, so she ended up getting baptized back in Germany. She got special permission. So everything went through. And yeah, so she got baptized on those Beatrice. She ended up surprising her whole family. She wasn't, I often talk about how um, they say the average convert in the Netherlands takes five to six years of investigating before they'll join. So I kind of feel like uh, I have two stories from my last year, both of them where I'm coming in at the end of 10 years of other missionaries teaching them. So I come in and I get to see the the fruit of somebody else's work. So in my first area, I got, we got, I got to be there to find somebody, but my last area, I got to be there to see, you know, the progress and, and the end result of somebody and then another family that I actually taught in my second area. So it was a husband and a wife. Well, they weren't married, uh, a man and woman who were cohabitating with their four kids. And in my second area, we were t- teaching their oldest daughter because she was over eight. And so we were teaching the whole family pretty much, but no, not the parents because the parents had been investigating for again, you know, probably 10 years they've been in bed they were like they went to church every sunday they did everything but they were like we joke they were dry mormons and so they were completely you know the board knew them loved them um you know they did as much as they could within you know within the rules but we taught them and then they got they moved and then being in my fourth area <laughs> so i got to go back and reconnect with them as regard again they were going to church and everything and they said yeah we're ready we're ready to get baptized and but we're ready to get married so on my last uh i think it was on my last pd so i had all these things happening in my last pd my mission um they got married in the morning so we went they they went to the civil court and got married so we have, I have pictures of them signing the book so they got married and that afternoon they got baptized and their daughter their oldest daughter got baptized so this whole amazing family got baptized married and baptized on my last p day so it was like oh. <laughs> so going from you know beginning wonderful experience but then struggling struggling my last area to see and i was only my last area two and a half months so to see that much happen 
And, uh, and that was in Rotterdam. That was in North Rotterdam. So my first hair area was The Hague. And then I was up in Groningen. Uh, they do a hard G is Groningen. And that's clear north. And then I was in uh, Beverwijk, which is near Harlem. I don't know if you've ever heard of Harlem. Harlem um, is where they filmed The Best Two Years. Have you ever seen The Best Two Years? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's, okay. They, they filmed that. The, the members that were in that movie are all from my third area. So from they were in the, yeah, the Beverwijk ward. Or I guess, no, the Harlem Ward, sorry, Harlem Ward. And then my last year, it was North Rotterdam, and that's where we were able to see some real miracles. I mean, I saw miracles, honestly, throughout my entire mission. Those stories that stay with you, the miracles that, you know, happened. Yeah, so, I love it. Yeah. yeah, thank you for sharing. Yeah, a few points that come to mind I'd like to maybe dive into a little further, too. First off, I think you bring up a great point that a lot of times we don't understand until we start a mission, right? That, like you said, sometimes we plant the seeds, and other times we're the ones who get to reap, mm -hmm. right? And so, which... It's, it's hard at times to be, right? You want to be the one to see them in the water, but that's why I'm excited to get to heaven one day and see mm -hmm. the fruits of all your efforts, right? I have no idea how far those ripples extend, right? Like, it'll be cool to see our efforts and what they've led. Yeah, yeah. And my kids have gone on missions and the seeds they're planting. And, the, and one of the things I thought about recently that just really hit me is that I don't think people realize unless they've served missions how hard it is to get somebody to church on Sunday. You know, you it yeah. takes like a million things to go right to get the your investigator there on Sunday and it's the biggest thing and you're just like members please take care of this precious investigator and it just breaks your heart if you know they come and they don't feel welcome it, it just I don't think they realize how much it took to get to that point mm -hmm. and and to possibly lose that because the one members don't embrace them yeah i think that we need to remember as members how we need to keep an eye on uh the new converts who are trying to find their their place and uh yeah really the importance of welcoming them and making them feel comfortable on sunday very very good points yeah i remember for a lot of my mission we had church at 8 a.m for some reason in mexico and to tell people like to come to church with us at eight in the morning they're in the morning eight in the morning like what it was so hard it's hard to get them. And Kylie struggled with that in East LA because a lot of them worked very hard. And sometimes they'd work on Sunday. She would have to go by and they would have to get there, especially the ones who were planning to get baptized because they're supposed to be there a certain number of Sundays before baptism. They would go and like, wake up, wake up. They'd be like calling them and knocking on the door and uh, just trying to get, you know, their investigators to go to church on Sunday so they could meet their baptismal, you know, get baptized on the, the date they had planned. And just, just worrying that, okay, if it's that hard now, what are they going to do after they join? Are they going to be able to continue getting up and going uh, to church? Wow. And, and you mentioned before that it takes, you know, five years for someone over there to take lessons and join the church. Why do you think that is? Like, I'd love to see if you maybe understand, know why. I think it's such a hard, it's a major change uh, for the Dutch to join. I think number one, because the church is really not well known. It's not mainstream. So I think it's kind of considered a little scarier to join something that's not as well known. Mm. Uh, a lot of people never even heard of the church. So to have them give up so much to join, because there's so many sacrifices and cultural things that have to change. And I think when they were going to, they were, and, and so my Cole is in uh, the Dominican Republic. He said, they'll, they'll, people will join any, they'll join. It doesn't mean they'll go. The Dutch, if they're going to join, they're going to be all in. So I think that they were not, willing to get baptized until they were ready to go all in. So we, I mean, there were less active members, but I think they were less willing to just join 
uh, they really wanted to be sure. So we, I don't even know if Herman, we found one investigator, amazing. And my first area, Herman, he loved, loved the missionaries. He was white male Catholic, which you just never, you never had any investigators who were uh, in that, you know, that demographic. And he, between our first and second appointment, he had read the entire Book of Mormon. Loved the Book of Mormon, but he, and we taught him for several months. And then there were sisters after us and sisters after the, uh, and, and he even came out to Salt Lake. Whoa. And a bunch of us sister missionaries went and went out to dinner with him and stuff. He just loved, loved the sister missionaries. He'd call us angels. We were all angels. And, uh, the last time I had contact with him, I mean, he even sent me, you know, money on my, for my wedding. He just loved the missionaries, thought we were just the most amazing people to sacrifice and go on a mission. And, and I, I think he knew it was true, uh, but it was such a change for him because he was a devout Catholic. And he, I think he even had like some sort of status within his, you know, his, his church community, but he was one who he had to know everything very intellectual but so i think of him as being kind of the standard the dutch the regular dutch that they were just very and i used to say you has to clope clopen is to like to make sense has to clope here and here so it has to make sense here and in your heart because um i tended before my mission to be more intellectual and i learned in my mission to do to kind of balance the spirit and so it was really hard to get the dutch to think something that was just not all logic you know because feelings remember feelings were kind of hard for them <laughs> and so to be able to get them to the point where they knew it in their heart as well as in their mind and uh, and make the changes it was it was tough uh, like i said i looked and they still still shows three stakes so that was how many stakes there were when i was there 30 years ago same number of stakes in the, in the country so i uh, you know more members but not more stakes. I kind of wonder what that meant. I, I think that they still struggle um, yeah. with, especially with the younger generation coming up. Um, they were the least religious, obviously, was the young people. A lot of times we would go, we would say a prayer with the family, and you'd see the youth just sitting there with their eyes open watching us during the prayer. That was kind of a nerdy. <laughs> a lot of times, a lot, a lot of prayers with the youth just sitting there watching us. <laughs> like member family. Wow. Yeah. So the youth weren't weren't as... As religious. Wow, so I can see why you would need lots of miracles over there, right, to help. Yeah, lots of miracles. Yeah, so how were you changed by these miracles on your mission? How do they help you on your mission? How do they help you send? Let's see. So my, I remember talking in my homecoming about how I came to expect them. And I know there is a expression like in Dutch that there's twofold. There's no coincidence. Um, but I did. I came to expect coincidences. And I learned to um, if I had a thought or a prompting, I learned to listen to it because uh, that happens so often in our mission where we get a feeling. And I, I, I don't know if you want me to share another story, but I had one experience. So the Dutch, they don't like you knocking on the door after 9 o'clock. So we were supposed to be out proselyting until 9.30. So between 9 and 9.30, to follow the rules, we should be out knocking on doors. But the Dutch do not like to have you knocking on the doors. I mean, it would infuriate them. They would come to the door and they'd be angry at the church. <laughs> and so we would have to try to find something to do for that half hour that was missionary work without bothering too many people because that was so culturally wrong after nine and uh i remember this one night we came we got out of a da kind of late and it was after nine and so my companion said let's start tracting i'm like are you kidding me 
they're going to be so mad. And she's like, well, let's just, just, we'll just do a few homes. And so we had our, you know, our little tracting book. You have a little track with the addresses and you, you know you how to do that. Now it's all, you know, my daughter and my son, it's all on their phone. But we used to, you know, cross out the numbers or circle them if we had to come back. Anyway, so she's like, well, let's just start on the street where the DA was. And so I'm like, where are we going to start? She's like, let's just start. And it's like, she wanted to start midway. Like halfway on the street. It wasn't even like at the beginning of the street. It was just like the middle of the street. She's like, let's just start here. I have a good feeling about this. I'm like, okay. I always like to joke that my companions, luckily, were more spiritually in tune than I was. I depended a lot on my fairy. fairy. And then something that I think I wasn't really good at till, and I'm still struggling with it, but they, she was very in tune. So she's like, let's start here. The the very first door we, we knocked on, they opened the door and there was a, uh, a young lady who was staying there with some friends and she was heading back to New Zealand the day before, but she had been baptized in the church. She was a member, but had left, like her family had gone inactive after she got baptized. So she was like in her probably twenties and she hadn't been to church since she was a child. And so she's like, and I'm leaving tomorrow to head back home. And she's like, this is like a sign from God that I'm supposed to look back into you know, these things, I remember how I used to feel. I remember primary. I remember all these things. So we asked if we could stop by the next day. We brought her like uh, the Liahona. I can't remember what it was, the stair. It was called the stair, the star in Dutch. So we brought her, or no, we, we brought her in English because she was English speaking. So we would have brought her the ensign. Um, so we brought her a copy of the church church magazine and brought her another copy of the Book of Mormon. And I think a few other things my companions thought, my companion thought of. And uh, we met back up with her the next day. I think we showed her a video. Yeah, we did. We showed her a video, a church video. And because uh, she had to leave that that afternoon to head back to New Zealand. But I remember thinking that the fact that my companion was led right to her door <laughs> after nine o'clock when I was like, no, let's head back. It takes about 30 minutes to get home anyway. And she was like, no, we're going to we're going to go do this. And I feel good about starting in the middle of the street. So, yeah, the hand of the Lord and me coming to expect and, and being willing to learn, because I was, this is my second area, and I was already still bad at it, learning to recognize promptings um, and thoughts and to recognize that that's how the Holy Ghost works is through feelings. And mm-hmm. I always tell the kids in primary, good ideas, <laughs> ideas that pop into your head that are good ideas, <laughs> not just ideas that pop in your head. <laughs> But to have those good ideas and and to actually be willing to, uh, even if you don't know why, you know, I've had uh, feelings where I need to t- turn a certain way and not go another way. I don't know if anything would have happened, but to be ready to listen and and not always have stimuli. That's one thing that I've been really good at is I don't always have stuff going. So I have the opportunity to have thoughts come in my mind. Like, you know, like in the shower, that's where I get most of my promptings because it's a, a time that your mind is clear and that you're able to hear, hear those promptings. That's something I learned on mission. I love that. that. And, and from my companions who were really good about it. Yeah, that's great. And that's what the mission does, right? It helps set the foundation for the rest of your life. And like how you said, you know, seek and expect miracles. I believe President Nelson was the one who spoke recently about that, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah. I think he mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's cool. It's true. On missions, when you're on the Lord's errand, he will help you, right? Absolutely. All, every single missionary has at least one experience when I saw that. I love that. Your, your companion just dialed into the house. Yeah, from eight to that. Yeah. And it wasn't actually, I think there was even three floors. I think she was started on the second floor. It was like so random. I remember going, why? Here? <laughs> and arguing with her. And it just tells you, right? Like, 
even though there's billions of people on this earth, the Lord knows exactly where we are. And if he wants to send some right to us, he will. Mm-hmm. How wonderful, right? Thank you for sharing. I love I love this. I hope, hope our listeners can enjoy this as much as I am right now. They're just hearing the glow that comes from you as you talk about your mission, these wonderful experiences. It's a good thing to remember mm-hmm. these experiences were in the hand of the Lord. And you have had the opportunity to send two children on missions. Mm-hmm. Your daughter is home now, and you have a son who's currently out. Mm-hmm. So what has it been like sending your children out on missions? It was great. I was really... Um... I know they, you're really supposed to be hands off. So I was very, I was very naughty. I was, I was really strongly encouraging. So I won't say I was pushing, but I strongly encouraged them to go on missions. And from the time they were little, and uh, I know I mentioned the best two years before, it took me like four hours to get to the movie because I had a lot of emotions, mixed emotions, a lot of, a lot, it was very emotionally difficult my mission was extremely difficult emotionally and i knew i was sending my kids out into a possible same situation so i knew it was really really hard but i knew it was really really good for them and so i strongly encouraged them with kylie she pretty much had already decided when she was a teenager to go but whenever she would start going i don't know i'd be like no you really should go <laughs> well all the things you're not supposed to do so i'm not a good example as far as i i you know i don't know if i crossed the line to pushing i think with cole i'd probably cross the line but um i definitely encouraged them i i talked about both the spiritual growth and the personal growth so i was thrilled when kylie was because a lot of times, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this, mission. I didn't choose a mission, a mission chose me. I don't know if I told you that at all. I never planned to go. I never, ever planned to go. And I was actually 22 when I went. So I had fought, fought it for a year. I did not want to go. I like to joke that it was like, I'm like this. And the Lord kept turning the wheel and I kept going smack, no, here. And I had every excuse under the face, but I knew I was supposed to go. I knew I was supposed to go and I was terrified to go because, uh, you know, I have a lot of social anxiety. I was really nervous about having to go talk to people. Uh, I was studying French. What if I don't go French speaking? I had a lot of uh, a lot of those things, but whereas Kylie, a lot, and in fact, oh, I think it was Sister Shimakonis in our ward mentioned that most sisters, uh, missionaries, a mission shows them, not the other way around. It's very rare that sisters are like, I just want to go. No, Kylie was like, I want to go. I want to go. She, it, it wasn't like a, a thing where she was pulled against her will. She really, really wanted to be there. Absolutely. That was her absolute desire was to be on a mission. And so when she went and she went, uh, it was during the pandemic, she went to East L.A., uh, and she was going Spanish speaking, but she really wanted to go Spanish speaking. Uh, and I had prepared her for, you know, be willing to accept wherever you go. Cause I finally put my papers on when I was ex- willing to accept, you know, I won't throw, I, I shouldn't say, I, I used to say, if I was called to Nebraska, I would go. And that was, <laughs> I don't know anything about Nebraska, but I'm like, <laughs> I would go. And I knew at that point when I was willing to go anywhere that I was ready to put my papers in. And so Kylie was so excited, but she was hoping to go international and she ended up going stateside but if you talk to her now she loved her mission sending her off was hard during the pandemic so what happened was that she did the on online mtc 100 percent, which we thought hoped that she would go to the because i loved my mtc experience loved it we really hoped that she would get the opportunity and it even says i guess it says that everyone's calls are still going to the the actual MTC, but that doesn't necessarily be the case. So hers actually said she'd be going to Mexico City MTC, but when we got closer, it, it still wasn't open. And so her online experience, she did really well, you know, loved her district, everything. We got to the airport to take her. 
we were expecting to go in, take her to the, you know, security, you know, do the big thing. We get to the door. So we parked our car. We get to the doors and I say, you can't come in. Uh, nobody's allowed in except those with tickets. So Salt Lake Airport was closed to anyone that was not the actual passenger. So we get to the doors and there's a guard there and he's like, you can't go. So we're like, we could say goodbye right now. We got out of our car, walked a few feet, and then we're told we couldn't go any further and she needed to go in. And there are other families with the same thing that were like saying goodbye. So our goodbye to her was really, really fast. Uh, it was a quick hug. We didn't even take a picture, nothing. Just, yeah, quick hug and cry. Quick hug and send her and she, you know, had she ever flown before? I think she'd flown a couple times before, but sending her, hopefully you'll find members of your district or something. Hopefully you'll find your gate. Hopefully just having to say, and I remember just as I released her, I realized, wait a second, I've got one message for you. Uh, so I, I was like, the thing that I struggled with my whole mission, the thing that paralyzed me at times, I said, you do not have to be perfect on your mission. You do not have to be a perfect missionary. You do not have to do 100% every single day unless it's your 100% and it's going to be different every day. But I said, that was the thing I said. I said, you do not have to be perfect. Because on my mission, I struggled with, there were days I was discouraged emotionally. There were days I needed to cry. Didn't know on my mission that I had hypoglycemia. So there were days I had low blood sugar and didn't know it. And so there were days I just needed to sit and cry and my companions would let me just sit and cry and I didn't always know why. It, it was such an emotionally uh, discouraging mission. And then I would feel guilty that I had wasted a half hour of the Lord's time to go cry. And so then I felt bad about myself. And it was just this spiral of, of trying to be perfect. And then if I made mistakes, I'm like, I'm ruining, I only have a year and a half and I'm screwing it up. And so trying to give myself is it grace, learning to, and the atonement. That's where I learned about the atonement. So that was when I was telling Kylie, you don't have to be perfect. I was trying to teach her in a second what took my entire mission to learn that the atonement is, I can lay my mistakes that half hour, I guess my mistake of crying for half an hour, not cross-lighting, lay that on the, on the Lord's feet, you know, at, at his feet. And, and, and I don't have to atone for my own mistakes that he did that for me. So I, a lot of times I'd have to make up for that time I wasted. So I felt like I was always behind trying to play catch up with my obedience. And so that was the one thing I told her at the, um, and I tried telling my son too. He's like, oh, I already know that. <laughs> at the, uh, the, at the airport with him, he's like, I already know I don't have to be I'm like, okay, you're good. <laughs> but with Kylie, that was one thing that was really important to me that she knew that she could just do her best, but not to put so much pressure on yourself because I know anxiety is a huge thing. I, I mean, with missionaries, uh, her companions, a lot of them, a lot of missionaries struggle with anxiety. It, it, a mission will bring out uh, things you already struggle with. So I always like to joke, it's like a microcosm. It's like a life compressed into a short period of time. So any issues you have, you'll have to deal with them on a mission in a more stressful situation. So it's one of those things where uh, I was really worried about her being too hard on herself as a missionary. So she did great, loved her mission. Yeah, came back, loves, still keeps in contact with a lot of the people that she taught, still uses her Spanish. <laughs> and then with Cole sending him off, he was the one I really kind of um, was more, <laughs> in fact, I don't know how much I should share his own personal story, but he had been kind of back and forth debating whether or not to go. And he was supposed to meet with the bishop the Sunday before conference 
and he had a really bad stomach flu, like really bad stomach after church. So it was after church, he was like so sick. And, and what he had decided with the mission was that he would move forward. If obstacles were put up, it was not meant to be. If the way was made smooth, he would go. It's kind of how we finally, he kind of got to the point where he's like, yeah, I think I'll go. We'll see. We'll start the process and kind of see. And so when he had the stomach thing, he's like, oh, God's telling me I'm not supposed to go on a mission. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 maybe, maybe you're supposed to hear something at general conference, which is next week. <laughs> and that's what I told him. I said, maybe there's something. So the next Sunday is when President Nelson said every young eligible man should go on a mission. That was literally the next Sunday after his canceled interview with the bishop. And so at that point, he's like, okay, <laughs> that was that was my answer that I'm supposed to go on a mission. So from there on, he was, you know, he was set. He was concerned about where he was going to go, um, had some real concerns about whether or not he could accept any place because he really wanted to go Spanish speaking. And I, I'm like, you know, we'll, when we get to that point, we can talk about it. Uh, but, you know, remember it is an assignment, you know, you're called to serve, but your assignment, we'll see. And uh, so he got, ended up going Spanish speaking. He was really happy. And uh, his his mission has been, I mean, I don't have to go into it too much here. He has been really struggling. He struggled for the first eight months, nine months. He's finally, he's hitting the year mark. So very honest about missions. They're not always smooth sailing. <laughs> he has struggled in every one of his areas until the last area he finally you know, struggle with companions, struggle with the culture, struggle with the climate, struggle with everything, and just lists of reasons why it was so hard. And me having to send back, well, most of those things you're struggling with are things I can send you, <laughs> you know, things that break in, you know, and all these things. And then he ended up in the hospital with dengue. And uh, that was about, what was it, October? He was in the hospitalized for dengue. But at that point, I think he was luckily protected and he was just fine. He was absolutely fine. But from that point on, I, something changed. He just, I don't know if it's the area, the companions, the, I don't know what, but he has just been loving his mission. <laughs> so, and I kept telling him, just wait that first, I've had other people tell me too, the first six months, you know, it's going to be a struggle. It's an adjustment period. Just hang in there and it gets better. The language will get easier. Uh, missionary work look at easier. Your confidence will get better. Hopefully, if you have a companion you struggle with, you know, you could talk to your mission president and have something. And I told him, I said, everything is temporary. Don't let anything get to you because everything is temporary. And if you struggle with anything, just do the best you can. And it will be very short period of time before, yeah, before you you know, and, and he's learned how to get along with his companions. He's learned how to let things go. <laughs> and that was something, yeah, I guess we could have talked about preparation, um, how I prepared the kids and stuff. But yeah, he, I, I have been worried about him for 10 months. And now I'm just like, oh boy, here we go. Now we're seeing the, we're seeing how he's just loving his mission. I'm like, okay, we're getting there. The whole, he'll come home and go, I'm so glad I went. I'm so glad you encouraged me. <laughs> so, yeah, so he's, yeah, he's doing really well. He's in Santiago right now. He's in the, it's not Peru, it's Santiago or Chile. I don't know where Santiago. He's in Santiago, Dominican Republic. He's actually in the capital city 
he's rooming with the APs right now, <laughs> which I thought he would struggle with, but he's doing okay. They're pretty cool. He's other pretty chill. So that's been great having them be able to contact us on P days with Messenger and being a part of their experience. That's like amazing, mm-hmm. amazing compared to like, you know, my mission yeah. where I called home, you know, Christmas and Mother's Day. It's good because we're able to give him moral encouragement, you know, chat with him, give him some, you know, insight into maybe how to deal with the companion, how to deal with the situation, to be able to give him some like wisdom, advice, love, support, you know, it's been really good having them be able to contact us good. every Monday. I love that because yeah, in the church, we always talk about the best two years, but I always say it's the best two years, but it's also the hardest two years, which is funny because I mean, we, we read in the scriptures, anybody that served a mission, it's always hard. But like for some reason, it never like clicked in my brain. A lot of members, mm-hmm. we never realized like, oh yeah, these guys got stoned. These guys got thrown in jail. These guys, but like it never clicks, but you can totally see if we're doing something so good that has such good eternal ramifications for people, it's going to be hard and it should be hard. And that draws us closer to the savior, right? Like when we spend our own time with him in the garden of Gethsemane mm-hmm. serving for him, that's when we draw close to him. It becomes mm-hmm. our best friend. And I'm glad you brought up perfectionism too on mission. Yeah. I know a lot of missionaries struggled with that. Oh, I struggled a lot with that with my mission. And even after my mission, thinking back of, oh, man, I should have done this differently. I should have done this differently. And and having to realize, you know what, we do the best that we can. Heavenly Father knows that sending out um, all of us who are imperfect beings to try to teach and help and lift each other. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's hard. It's one that um, I... I was able to hear a little bit of what you were saying uh, with sending Kylie out in perfectionism. But that's one thing I'm so glad that you brought up is that I think is a big thing for mm-hmm. many of us who serve missions, many who will serve missions. It's We want to do the best that we can, especially when we're serving the Lord. But it's hard to remember that he doesn't expect us to be perfect. The other thing I loved that you were talking about with your son, you brought back a memory from my mission where you know so often yeah I, th- I think we're told kind of a timeline on timeline of make it through the first year or make it through the first week of the mtc it's better and that's the timeline i've been given on my mission so i i was called to brazil from south but i waited for my visa for 11 months and i visa waited in colorado springs and then was able to go down to brazil and because i had not got to practice the language for that whole time they sent me to, they had me do a little refresher course in the Brazil MTC for two weeks and then finish out my mission. Oh, cool. So it was like a very unique experience as far as missions go. And it's something that I I will forever be so grateful for the experience that I had. But initially I was told, make it through the first week in the MTC. When I got to the MTC, that's what everybody was saying. Make it through the first week, it gets better. And I didn't, you know, I was like, oh. MTC is great. I had like, I did okay with that part, but I translated that. I was terrified to go to a different country to learn a language. I do not feel like I am gifted with languages. And that was a really big trial of faith for me. And going to Brazil and making it or being there the first week out of the MTC, I kept thinking, make it through the first week, mm-hmm. make it through the first week, which is a very short time to, to feel adjusted. And I got through that first week and I woke up on Sunday and thought, oh, I've made it. It's going to be a wonderful day. 
sale. I got ready for church. We go to church. I sit down a sacrament meeting and they start the meeting in Portuguese and I couldn't understand anything. And I sat there and wanted to cry. I was like, I don't know what I was expecting, but it was not. That. And I just was so distraught that whole day of, I made it to the first week and Heavenly Father, I am at the lowest point I have felt. And I just want to give up and sit on this curb and cry. I was like, nope, I got to keep going. We went to our lunch appointment meal and the members that fed us that day, I will forever be so grateful for because at that point after a week, my shoes walking so much, my feet were just bleeding down to my shoes. And so I I was in pain. Mm -hmm. The language I was so discouraged about, I was missing home. I wasn't understanding the comfort and yeah, I just felt distraught. And these sweet members, the wife was sitting by me and she happened to notice I moved my foot. They had been scabbed over. I moved my foot enough that the scabs all broke. And she saw the blood kind of seeping into my shoes. And she said, sister, why is your foot bleeding? Come with me. And she stopped right there and took me in and helped me clean it up and got bandage on it. And and she looked at me after helping me clean up and she's like, sister, and she said this in English. She's like, sister, what did she say exactly? Um, something to the effect of like, sister, you are not alone. Like we are here as members and we will help you, but you have to let us know when you need help, but help will be here and we are here to back you up. And it was what I needed to hear. Those weren't her exact words, but it, it was that feeling of, as a missionary, you have people to back you up. You have the members, you have your companions, you have your mission president. Um, and even though it's hard, whatever timeline you're given in your mind of like, make it through this time, it, it sometimes it works and sometimes it just doesn't. And you just want to sit down and cry. The Heavenly Father is there. Sometimes you don't feel that support necessarily around you. If you're not getting along with your companion or you don't feel like the ward supporting, but you will feel angel nervous you will feel the help that you need when you need it but you might hit that breaking point of your feet are bleeding and you're just discouraged uh, anyways that was the memory sorry usually i try not to many memories but um or experiences but your yeah your stories made me think of that with me it was frostbite so i had in my second area our pipes had frozen it was so cold and my boots i had fashion boots not real boots and i was on a bike my whole mission uh, the dutch it, it, it's under sea level and the ground is just icy cold and the cold would just come up through my boots and i would have to find members homes to go throw my feet out so i actually had cardboard i put into my boots for a while but yeah we would find a member's home and go throw our feet out and they were just so sweet to us so we always knew where the members were around the city if we ever needed to stop in and you know use a bathroom or get a water we always knew that they would just welcome us with open arms and and let me thaw out my feet i remember sitting my feet next to their you know their heat and trying to fill my my feet again eventually got better boots but but that made me think of the members and specifically how much walking you do and how much they care about us uh, and they did they honestly loved us and and just like i mentioned before they just spoiled us they just did everything they could to support us and remind us that we weren't, yeah. Because a, a lot of times I did feel alone uh, because there aren't a lot of members in the Netherlands. It, it's, you know, you feel like you're definitely in the, like, the minority minority. But, um, yeah, that's awesome. I love that. She literally washed, did she wash your feet? <laughs> no, she did. I, she gave me this stuff that I could wash them off because I, I, 
I'm a nurse. I would have been like, no, 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 don't, don't touch my, don't touch me now. I just know how to clean up. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, that was my story. But honestly, hearing about frostbite, that, that would have been rough. That one, I probably would have cried over for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, then we can't do it without the members, right? Like it, it's, we're all one team and it, mm-hmm. it's so good at that support. I had so much good support from members in Mexico and it's, it's funny part of a global church where we're all working together to bring others to Christ, mm-hmm. right? I'd love to ask you, uh, Holly, while we're on here, what advice would you have for members of the church, you know, to share the gospel and be involved in this work? Oh, so one, I know one thing that I, I, because I, it's scary to me too, to share the gospel. So what I used to tell people, um, and when we would visit them, because again, these were members who were very, very afraid. I remember one kid who was going on a mission, hadn't even told his friends he was a member. He was about to go on a mission and he hadn't even told anybody. So people, a lot of times they wouldn't even let people know they were members. So they were very scared to even revealed they were members versus sharing the gospel. So what we used to say was pray to be led, or what I like to say is have someone put on a silver platter handed to me <laughs> to, to share. So basically create natural situations where I can share the gospel where it is natural. Like hand me those situations, hand me those opportunities where I can do it in a natural way that I don't have to go out and struggle and find, but make it natural, make it. And, and I think that we have that, you know, the right to pray for those opportunities to be handed to us, that we will be presented with these opportunities where it's not going to be painful and difficult and hard, but it'll be natural. And so, I mean, even if it's just, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a major thing, but just to be able to get opportunities to interact with people that are maybe less active or, you know, aren't members or even ones who are, but are struggling. Yeah. Just have those opportunities handed to you. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Uh, Very practical advice, right? That we can say those prayers to have it feel natural and, and I don't know, feel more normal to, to share the gospel. Any advice that you have specifically for youth considering going on a mission? Uh, yeah, so I had written some things down. I have to think about it. One thing that it seems like uh, some of the the elders in my MTC, some of them hadn't really fully had a testimony. So that's a, that's a struggle because sometimes they go out because it's expected, but it's only going to last them so far. Yeah, they absolutely need to know, you know, know that it's true before they go out. Um, not just the Book of Mormon, but, you know, Joseph Smith, have a testimony of the restoration of the gospel and to actually, you know, know what they believe. The other thing that we talk a lot about, my kids, is resilience. That word has come up so many times since Cole's been on his mission because it's like if he hadn't had resilience, he would have been home by now. It, his, the challenges he he's faced, like, you know, the humidity. He is in a place that's always 90 degrees and humid. Uh, and they're constantly soaked in sweat and just miserable physically. And the resilience to be able to keep going uh, when you have physical challenges, emotional challenges, spiritual challenges, to learn resilience. Uh, and how do you teach resilience? <laughs> how do you develop resilience? But to really find those opportunities to learn to work hard, to be able to uh, you know, maybe work f- physically. You know, we, with building our home, we had the kids doing a lot of work and, and that took res- resilience and to be able to keep going and to be able to follow through with, with, with their commitments, you know, not letting them quit so easily, uh, encouraging them to keep going with things when they're hard, you know, to, to a point. And then also uh, I couldn't get, I don't know if I could, either, I could not get 
my daughter to take, I don't know if she took any uh, mission prep. I took mission prep class. It was actually Brother Ed. Ed Penninger was my teacher at BYU, my uh, mission prep, and he was awesome. I love Brother Ed. I couldn't get either kid. And, and Kylie, after she served mission, she's like, Cole, take a mission prep class. And he didn't. So when they come home, they're like, take one. And then they don't solve it. <laughs> so that's something I would recommend is taking a mission prep class. Following mission rules. That's one that we've talked a lot about with Cole, because he tends to be a little rebellious, um, but reminding him that learning to follow the rules bring blessings. So to be able to have a, a desire before your mission to go and follow the mission rules, even if they don't always make sense, there's a reason for them. Learning some basic skills like cooking, cooking and cleaning, things like that. Uh, for some reason, I thought that a lot of the South American uh, missions have like maids that come and clean and stuff but Cole for example doesn't have he has to do his own cooking and cleaning so I was glad that he already had those skills so he already knows in fact he likes to show off all his his uh, <laughs> meals he makes and <laughs> and then um, let's see learning how to let things go so my daughter she had not she had been going to UCAS and the U of U so she never had roommates I made her move out for one semester and live with roommates so she would have that experience of learning to because she was always she didn't put up with a lot around the house like <laughs> like you're chewing too loud or you're breathing too loud you know everything would annoy her i'm like she needs to learn how to be with people that you can't just tell them that she had to learn how to get along with roommates so she lived down uh, in an apartment for a semester before her mission to learn to get along and let things go because your companions you're with them 24 7 and uh, you're not even with your spouse 24 7 i remember people saying that it's hard to be with somebody who is very different than you and to be able to let things go and uh and so i did not i was that difficult companion with my mtc comp and my trainer and my so my second comp in the, in the mission. So my first three comps, I was the difficult companion. So I was already struggling with being on a mission because remember it chose me, I didn't choose it. So I was already struggling with being there and scared and just all these things that I had a real hard time. I was a very difficult companion. And then I realized, wait a second, what's the common denominator here? It's me, I'm the problem. Three companions, I could get along with three companions, I'm the problem. And it wasn't all the time. It was just often enough that it was, it, I, I finally realized, okay, I'm the problem. I got along with all my companions from there on out. I didn't have a single problem. I think I had six more companions, not a single problem. Because I realized that that I needed to do something differently. Uh, I needed to let things go. I needed to be more easygoing. Everything's temporary. I didn't want to look back with regret like I did with my first three comps. Uh, you know, we got along for the most part, but I regretted how I behaved with my first three comps. You know, I'd love to reach out to all three of them and apologize because I was, I was... I was difficult and to learn to be able to just let things go. It's going to be temporary and you don't want to look back with regret. Well, such great practical advice. I, I love it. And I love it because you were thinking ahead, preparing your children for missions. Like they say, the home is the best mm -hmm. pre MTC that you can have. Right? Yeah. I mean, or MTC mm -hmm. is the best MTC you can have. So it's great to teach your kids from a young age, like prepare for missions. It's going to be hard. Let's not sugarcoat it. I think one of my biggest takeaways tonight is you talk about on missions, they're hard, but like you said, a lot of those mm -hmm. problems on missions are temporary, but the consequences are eternal, right? So it's so important to get out there to do the best we can. Our testimonies will grow. We'll help others return to live with our father in heaven with their families forever. Like it's worth it. 
it's hard, but oh man, it is so worth it. Yeah. We always say that the, the difficult times outnumber the good ones, but the good ones outweigh the bad ones. We used to say that in my mission a lot, that they absolutely, those good memories, you see how I am, they outweigh those difficult memories, definitely. And way more hard difficulties, but those good moments, oh boy. Yeah. They're, yeah. I mean, I still, I still, I love my mission 30 years later. I didn't always like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And oh, let's say one last thing yeah. is that they used to say days were long, but the weeks were fast. I don't know if you felt that on your mission. Yes. It's like, oh, it's PD again. But the days were so long. But it was like, oh, it's PD again. The weeks fly. But yeah, some, some of those days feel real long. Amen. Thank you. But thank you for being on tonight with us, Holly. It's been a wonderful episode. I think our listeners are going to absolutely love hearing from you and your your enthusiasm about the mission, right? It's hard to not look back with, with joy. I mean, not everybody, maybe you can, but if, as you focus on those good things from your mission mm-hmm. and the way that you're drawn closer to the Savior on your mission, I think it's a good thing. So thank you for being on here tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yes. Thank you so much, Holly. You're amazing. And we oh, really, yeah. we really appreciate your time and, and all of these experiences and advice. You, you're awesome. And thank you to all of our listeners tonight. We hope you'll continue listening to us on next week's episode of In the Lord's Vineyard. 